0: You are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama? Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to today's conversation and we have Professor Dede Chadi from the University of Pretoria. I'd like to ask him to introduce himself.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Tatenda, and thank you for inviting me for this podcast. It really is an honor. My name is Tadi, as you said. I'm a professor at the University of Victoria. I'm a, me- a member of the International Law Commission and a member of the Institut de Tawar International. Yeah, so that's more or less who I am.
0: Well, for a man with these, your achievements, you don't seem to have a lot to say about yourself.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, no, I have a lot to say about myself, but you just asked me to introduce myself. Do you want me to say a little bit more about myself? I, um, I can do yeah,
0: that would be great. Sure,
1: that's great. So I studied at the University of Pretoria. Uh, I studied at the, at the University of Pretoria many, many years ago. Uh, I did a BLC and an LLB here. Um, in fact, I remember my student days um, I did a lot of work for the Center for Human Rights um, when I was still a fledgling entity. I, I then did a master's degree uh, at the University of Connecticut in the United States, which was followed by a PhD focused on international law relating to sustainable development. Um, So some of the issues that I think are pertinent to to the work that I'm currently doing. Subsequent to to completion of the PhD, I was working at the University of Pretoria as a lecturer at the time. Um, I then moved on and became um, associate professor at the University of South Africa, teaching international law. And I was teaching international law, and I I mean, I really love international law and, and I've been passionate about it since my second year. I know this word passion is, is, is overused, but, but there's really no other word that I can describe um, my connection with um, the field of international law. So so while I was working at UNISA, I thought you know, it's, it's important to, to sort of, uh, if I'm going to teach students properly about international law, it's important not just that I have learned it and that I have written about it, but that I've actually been involved in it. So, I, I then applied, I took a chance and I applied to the Department of Foreign Affairs, as it was called then, now Department of International Relations um, and Cooperation. And I thought, I'm going to take my book knowledge of international law and put it to use. But at the same time, also learn a little bit something about international law um, f- from a completely different angle and a completely different perspective. So, I became a um, a principal state law advisor for international law at the Department of Foreign Affairs. In 2009, I, I had the honor of being invited condo, to, to represent South Africa at our mission in New York, at the South African permanent mission in New York, where I was the legal advisor. So really in the midst of international lawmaking, right in the middle of international lawmaking, uh, um, and I was legal advisor of the mission of the South African mission from 2009 until what was then the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. And I served another year as principal, state, or advisor. And then home called. The University of Victoria was always my home. So it called and I felt that, you know, the time had come now for me to come back to academia to teach. I took a position here as professor. Incidentally, a few months after that, then foreign minister Called me up and asked me if I wouldn't be a, a special advisor. I was also um, special advisor to the foreign minister, and I, so now I'm just um, a professor. As I said, I'm a member of the International Law Commission and its special rapporteur on on use cogens or peremptory norms of general international law. Um, in 2017, I was elected to the Institut de Droit International, uh, <clears throat> and as you know, I, I've I've recently been. Um, I've recently been invited to serve on um, a commission of the Institut de Droit, um, a commission on pandemics and international law. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that. I'm I sure um, you have a couple of questions to ask me about the work of that commission. Um, but generally that's who I am. I teach international law. As I said, I write on international law. I see myself as a generalist. So I'm not a specialist in any one field, Um, in different periods of my life, I have focused on different areas of international law. So I have grown or gained a bit of expertise in some areas. Um, so so I mentioned that I did my PhD on sustainable development, so I gained a lot of expertise on that. I, I've worked a lot on the law of the sea. I've worked a lot on um, international criminal law uh, because I've had to, not because I've particularly enjoyed it, but I've worked a lot on international criminal law, um, and I've worked a lot on international law and peace and security in particular um, on, on, on the law relating to the use of force. Uh, so that's more or less what I've done. Um, um, so obviously... Um, Human rights hasn't been a a specific focus, but it's hard to ignore human rights because it sort of permeates just about um, uh, most areas of international law.
0: Fantastic. That's quite a comprehensive narration of the work that you've been involved in. And I'll just go to my next question. So one of your most recent and monumental achievements was to be appointed to serve on the Institut de Trop. I don't know if I said that correctly. Um, and what role do you think it can play in relation to pandemic?
1: Yeah, so the Institute de Troyes, actually it's um, uh, the, English, the English translation is the Institute of International Law um, is... Um, yeah, I'll start by just describing very quickly um, the institute of maybe i 'll describe it in relation to the other body that i'm a member of so there's there's two big codification bodies in international law in general international law. obviously you 've got codification bodies that deal with very specific uh, rules so you 've got a codification body that deals with trade law that's one straw but um, the u n has a so the United Nations has a codification body um the international law commission it gets its mandate under Article 13 of the UN Charter, which provides that the General Assembly um, shall be responsible inter alia for promoting codification and progressive development of international law. And so the the ILC, the International Law Commission, is is a subsidiary organ of the General Assembly. So it basically helps the General Assembly in its codification work. It was formed in 1948. The Institut de droit, on the other hand, is a much older codification body and does pretty much the same work as... International Law Commission. The big difference between them, I think, is, I mean, there are many differences, but the big difference in terms of substance, in terms of work, is that the Institut de Droit is a private body, whereas the International Law Commission is a UN body. Um, I think that's the main difference. So um, the Institut de Droit's work is then also Progressive development and codification of international law, so it, it takes if you like a bird 's eye view of different rules of international law and sort of tries to systematize them. It tries to encourage integration between different areas it does so by elucidating rules of international law in specific areas, but also making sure that that, that these rules are, are consistent with other branches of international law, uh, which now brings me to your specific question on what the instituted was role can be, uh, immediate role can be in relation to the pandemic. So um, I should preface this remark by just saying that there's a difference of views within the commission, the the pandemic commission on what our function ought to be. There are some whose view is that we ought to, in relation uh, to our work, uh, be aimed on be inspired uh, by the desire to uh, to contribute to, to resolving issues pertaining to this pandemic. Um, I think that's overly ambitious, impossible, and likely to result in, in bad outcomes and a bad product. Uh, for me, the function um, and the contribution that the Commission on Pandemics can make um, is to codify various areas of international law into a single comprehensive instrument that responds to sort of the different rules and the different problems that arise um, in a comprehensive manner, but not trying to address this particular pandemic. I mean, if we try to address this particular pandemic, it means we have to have a rush job, and a rush job I don't think is going to do justice to the complexity of the issue. So I think we need to be deliberative, and we have to think not about this pandemic, but we have to think about future pandemics, right? So what we need to be thinking about is how to address future pandemics. And by the way, I must say, that the commission itself, so the work of the Institute um, is, is titled Pandemics in International Law. Uh, the com- the um, the commission itself, uh, which is a sub-organ, a kind of a committee of the institute, has decided to focus broadly, not on pandemics but epidemics as a whole. And as you know, sort of so so, it's not just the narrow form of pandemics, but it's the broader form of um, of epidemics. And we're still struggling, by the way, in case you're going to ask me that question, with precisely the distinction between epidemics and pandemics. We, we've come to a broad agreement that epidemics are much larger, right? So they're more impactful um, and epidemics are much smaller than, but, there has to be a much, more, um, a much more scientific, if you like, or much more precise rather than scientific, a much more precise definition. And so we're going through a number of definitions, uh, more medical definitions, more legal definitions, and sort of trying to come up with this. So that, in my view, is what the commission ought to be focused on, trying to put all of these rules in sort of one cohesive, comprehensive whole. Um, you will know that the World Health Organization already has regulations of, I think, 2005, the International Health Regulations of 2005, that are essentially sort of the bedrock, right? They're the bedrock of rules that states have agreed to on how to address and to deal with pandemics and world emergency outbreaks. Our main function, therefore, has to be on the basis of this to sort of see how different areas of international law that aren't necessarily covered by the international health regulations ought to be addressed in times of pandemic. So you've got these health regulations these health regulations don't tell you anything about human rights and the protection of human rights in the course of pandemics, right? So we need to address that, right? And we need to sort of see what's the inter the proper relationship and sort of how one area of law that is human rights affect and is affected by uh, another area of law, which is health law governed by the um, the international health regulations. We also don't know, at least it's not in um, the health regulations, um, what are the particular responsibilities of states and under what circumstances states can be held responsible for uh, their contributions to the outbreak of a pandemic and the negative impacts and effects that arise from that contribution. So that's something that I think the commission would have to address, uh, consensus within the commission as to whether or not this is something that we should address, but certainly my view is that we ought to address this. And there are issues pertaining to trade. So there are all of these issues that are governed by different branches of international law, and our function has to be to sort of put on the, the hats of uh, generalist international lawyers take a bird's eye view of all of these areas and sort of say, how can we mold a com- cohesive, comprehensive system in which you don't have different rules or different branches of international law speaking together? And the hope is that we would, the hope is that at the end of it, we would come up with a set of draft articles that that comprehensively and systematically addresses issues. So just one last thing or two last things, maybe. The commission was established in March and already we are now in June and I'm sitting and I'm looking at the second report from the special rapporteur on on epidemics and international law, um, pandemics and international law, depending on whether you're looking at the answer to you or or the commission's work. and um, so we've made a lot of progress. Already we have 14 draft articles that have been proposed. I'm not particularly happy with them, but any anyway, we have 14 draft articles that have been proposed. So it just tells you that we're moving along really quickly, which I'm not sure is a good thing, but event, anyway, we are moving along fairly quickly.
0: Well, you did say some very interesting things. The first thing is the issue of time, where you're saying the commission really can't be rushing through finding frameworks to address the pandemic. but Looking at the nature of the pandemic, particularly the coronavirus pandemic, there is a need to have swift responses to different situations that the world is facing. So wouldn't that be seen in a positive view to say, look, the commission is really responding as swiftly as it can to address some of these issues? I think in international law and in other human rights or other treaties, there's a problem of rigidity where we don't have that flexibility to address issues as they arise that's my question and I'd like to hear what you think yeah. about yeah I mean I think
1: you're right um, there's a need to balance a lot of things out um, but I mean the reality is is okay so so I think that um, you're right and I can certainly see um, so many members of the commission of the pandemics commission expressing a lot of sympathy for the view that you are you are you're putting forward that we have a pandemic right now so we need Need to address it right now. Um, but there's a couple of problems with that. One is is that you can't address it right now. I mean, it's just simply not possible. Um, even if we really moved at a fast pace, say we, we are now in June, we've looked at two reports, we plans to have around 25 draft articles. So even if we move really quickly, um, you're looking at a complete product, um, at least of the commission uh, by say September. That's your first issue. The second issue is the commission. So the pandemics commission can't make any decisions. The pandemics commission is only a, a subcommittee, as I said, of the Institut de Trois. So ultimately, it still has to be adopted by the Institut de Um So you're still looking at the earliest that it will be adopted is 2021. Um, and my assumption, my hope is that the pandemic um, so would have been um, uh, so would have been. Put under some control by then. Um, if it's if it hasn't, then um, I think we're in deep problems. Um, the second reason why I'm not convinced by the argument of uh, speedy um, of rushing is that um, law is very important. Um, but the reality is that the, the 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 dangers that we're facing right now, the immediate dangers, aren't legal dangers. Uh, the immediate dangers that we're facing right now are health dangers. And I think, uh, you know, I don't want to overblow the importance of lawyers. Uh, I love lawyers. I'm a lawyer. But let's not overblow our importance. Um, even if we were to adopt a set of really wonderful draft articles on pandemics, it's not going to stop this pandemic. So it's not as if, yeah. So so I'm just a little bit cautious um, about um, this idea that that somehow, if the uh, the Institut de Droit can come up with a you know wonderful set of draft articles, that that will be you know um, um, so that would help resolve um, the immediate issues, the immediate emergency issues that we're facing. The immediate emergency issues that we're facing um, can't be resolved by by an instrument. So by um, no less a soft law instrument, because remember, this is not even an instrument that's that's adopted by states. Um, so, so you you have um, the fact that it still has to be adopted by, by by the Institut de Droit, and then it still has to influence. Um, it's not, you know, it's not going to affect this. The third reason, and for me the most important reason why we should not rush, is that um, quite frankly, if you want to have, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, Just to make the point that I want to make, I'm gonna read you a provision which is in the current text, which is in the current proposed text. And it's draft article four. It says all states have the obligation to prevent, reduce, and control the harm of epidemics and to exercise due diligence in taking appropriate measures in accordance with applicable rules of international law. Uh, That's great, but it really doesn't take us much further. I mean, if that's what you're going to be focused on, then what you want is you want the Institut de droit to really drill down into that obligation. We all know there's an obligation like that. We we now need to think carefully, and that means a lot of hard work, digging deep and peeling the, um, the layers of international law to sort of say, what does that mean? What does that general provision, what does that general rule mean in relation to pandemics? What are some of the obligations? What are some of the things that you would put forward to sort of say, let's test whether or not a state has complied with this, particular obligation or not. If you're simply going to say that, I mean, I can write this in a day. Uh, this is, this, this goes without saying, it doesn't require the kind of meticulous work that it doesn't require the kind of meticulous work that I think should characterize the work of the commission. Um, so, so that's the third reason is, is that if you rush it, you risk not having a good product you risk not having a product that can be helpful. So in 2030, when a new pandemic comes up and you have these rough articles, you know, uh, I might look at this and say, well, this doesn't help me much. This is useless, right? What you want is you want, you want to accept that you're not going to, to somehow resolve the issues relating to this pandemic. But you want to make sure that come the next one, you've got a text that's really going to help. Um, And I think for that, that we need to be a lot more deliberative. We need to work harder. Um, um, So that's what In fact, um, there is a a fourth reason why why I think we shouldn't rush it. Uh, Even if everything that I've said doesn't apply, right? So even if we're able to really move speedily and we're able to have a really good text, like deep, um, the fact is that you cannot use it as a matter of law to address the issues in the current pandemic, you can't simply because um, it would be in a sense sort of ex post facto applying. Right? You rules rules by definition are always forward-looking. Um, so so you're not going to be able to address in any event um, 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 as a matter of law um, the issues arising from the current pandemic. That's that's yeah. So that's why I wouldn't. I'm not convinced. I can certainly see why uh, why some would want to rush it, but I'm, I'm I'm not convinced that it's the it's the best path forward. I
0: have so many questions, but I don't know if, for the nature of of our podcast and the time that we had, maybe I can just um, really just go ahead and and just ask. Well, for me, I. Yeah, you know, what, let's just move on, and I'll ask the question. Maybe you'll address it um, as you as you as you um, answer the other questions. So, my next question would be: As the world faces the coronavirus pandemic, many governments have taken measures such as mandatory quarantines and isolations of individuals, blanket travel bans, and have declared states of emergency, thereby assuming exceptional powers. Do these measures? implicate international law at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they do. If you think about it, the um, most basic uh, or the most important rules of international law that have emerged since 1945 Um, are those rules that pertain to international human rights and the protection of human rights law. Um, And the measures that you've described, um, of course, um, infringe or impact, I shouldn't use infringe, but impact at least on the enjoyment of those rights. I mean, the very idea of um, the international human rights system is, I think, based on this concept of dignity, freedom, and also on the notion that the limitation or the impacting on these rights has to be justifiable and justified. And so certainly um, it impacts the question is um, in what way? So if you think about, if you think about sort of the measures that that we have adopted in South Africa, and I guess it's uh, these are similar. I mean, if I speak to my friends all over the world, um I get a sense that these measures are pretty consistent with measures that have been adopted elsewhere just the very idea that you are under lockdown, right? I mean, the very idea that you're under lockdown um, uh, um, seriously impacts on your right to freedom of movement. Um, It seriously impacts on your right to association. I mean, the the idea that you cannot visit, the idea that you cannot go to church, right, impacts on um, the right to freedom of religion. So there there are all of these rights. In fact, you can even, um, some things that we haven't, um, that are really ever brought up um, in the context of this conversation, um, f- freedom of expression, right? I mean, that's that's impacted. Uh, we had a, a regulation uh, so that was announced. Not many people have spoken about it, um, which concerned the propagating of uh, false news. Uh, right? Um, uh, the term, I believe, the term on the streets is fake news. But that impacts on your right to freedom of expression, right? Um, so, so you have all of these, and of course, these, these, um, um, so, so these impact. And one of the functions of the commission would then be to sort of look at what are the limitations. Now, of course, the function of the commission is not to make law, but it's to sort of um, uh, is to sort of um, uh, take existing law and sort of make it consistent with each other. And if you look at the international human rights system, uh, it generally or you know, already provides um, for the possibility of impacting on these rights, but it also sets out uh, how, uh, I mean, under what circumstances, um, so on. So, so if you think about the ICCPR, or the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, for example, um, um, so, so it has limitations. So, so, internal limitations. I mean, if you look at any right, um, just uh, yes, yeah, so if you look at any right, um, you will see that it's not the rights are not formulated in such a way um as to make them absolute and uh, I mean, so there are limitations and so on. Um so that's one thing the internal limitations and then there may also be uh, um some general limitations. Um in the course of um uh, in the context of pandemics um I guess um, um what becomes particularly relevant because so when you're told that you have to stay at home, it's not it's no longer a limitation. It's, it's much broader than limitation. It's more impactful um, uh, and more invasive than um, <laughs> a limitation. So then what comes into play is um, derogations because a state would then have to derogate from It's essentially um, derogation of the right. So the question arises as to whether or not um, the derogation, the taking away, the complete taking away of the right for a specific period of time is permissible. This, of course, depends on specific um, and this is also the function of the commission because derogations generally are governed by treaty, right? And so it's, it's seldom that we speak about derogations under general international law, except if you're talking about use cogens. And so the question then that arises for the purposes of the commission is beyond treaty law and also taking into account that treaties would probably regulate derogations differently. Are there general rules that we can put forward, right? Um, So if you look at some treaties, for for example, specify what rights may not be derogated from. Typical example here is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which lists a number of rights that may not be derogated from, um, including the right to life, which is the right that may not be derogated from um, um, the right to be free from servitude and slavery. That's a right not to be So that may not be derogated from. But other rights may be, right? So, So... so that's part of the, the, um, the issues I think that the Commission would have to address. To what extent are derogations permissible, what rights may be derogated from, under what circumstances, and what are the limitations of those rights?
0: So there's a correlation between pandemic regulation and international trade law, which is also relevant when it comes to intellectual property. How does this lead to tension between public health goals and intellectual property rights? And how does this affect the right to health?
1: So thank you very much um, for that question. I'll I'll start off the question by saying there are many areas of international law that I have never, ever touched, and trade law is one of them. But still, I'll say a couple of general things, particularly because the Commission, the Pandemics Commission, is definitely addressing trade issues. And in fact, it's it's reflected or it's discussed um, in the second report. If you think about the sort of international trade law, the most basic rule the general motif i guess of international trade law is is free trade and liberalization and so on, and there are different ways and different places in which this 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 concept is reflected. So, in the various treaties, you you have the, the two basic rules, I guess, sort of the most favored nation principle and the national treatment principle. And these principles are intended to sort of liberate trade. So, the most favored nation principle, for example, requires that the treatment that you give to to a product must be no less favorable than that of um, a treatment that you give to another state. Um, the national treatment principle requires that you give, um, you do not discriminate between domestic products, imported products, right? And all of this is intended to promote free trade and so on. And these rules, basic rules, general motif can be found in a number of treaties under the World Trade Organization, um, to the general agreement on trade and tariffs, technical barriers to trade, sanitary and phytosanitary measures agreements, all of these agreements put forward this idea of liberalization of trade. So when a state decides that it's going to adopt measures to prevent goods from coming in for health measures, it raises the issue whether or not this is consistent with general motif and international trade law for the liberalization of trade. Of course, the, the, the agreements do make exceptions. Certainly, there's the famous... Get Article 20, which is reproduced in different forms in these other agreements, which basically provides that a state can take measures to protect human health, human, animal, or plant life and health. So that would seem to suggest that if it's necessary to protect human health because of a pandemic, then you can adopt certain measures. Now, the Commission has to again. This is um, this is a very simple, basic explanation. But my sense is that the issues are a lot more complex than that. I think that the Commission would need to take a much closer look and sort of peel the layers away to sort of um, arrive at all the complexities and then to provide a text on sort of how to balance this need to liberalize trade on the one hand with the need to protect human health, animal life, and so on. So that's with respect to the Um, so free trade in general. You you mentioned in your question, you mentioned uh, intellectual property and intellectual property, of course, presents its own complexities. In fact, (laughs) you know, one of the things I've, I've often asked myself is whether or not intellectual property doesn't go against the very essence, this general motif of free trade. So if you think about it, free trade is about let's make it possible to access goods, let's make it possible for goods to move, whereas intellectual property, I think, you know, has exactly the opposite. It's sort of, and yet it's governed by the same regime. It's sort of the intellectual property holder has the ability to sort of prevent the proliferation of the thing over which he, he or she has intellectual property so obviously this creates tension between as you mentioned um health goals and health objectives if an intellectual property holder has intellectual property over medicine To access that medicine, you need to go through the intellectual property holder. The intellectual property holder might have uh, exorbitant prices, so you might not be able to to access the medicine, and so that might impact on health. This is a problem, and in, in fact, it was a huge problem in the 90s and the early 2000s in particular when developing countries were saying, we cannot be precluded by a system you know, of intellectual property from saving lives and addressing the health concerns of our population. And in fact, the World Health Assembly has itself recognized this and has said that it's, it's important to ensure that the interests of trade, and I'm quoting here, the interests of trade and health are appropriately balanced and coordinated. As a commission, I think, We would need to sort of again drill deeper and to say, well, well, how do you do that? Right. So how do you achieve this balance between the need to protect intellectual property, the need to protect the intellectual property of the IP holder, versus on the one hand, the need for states to take measures to make sure that medicine is freely available? And again, I think that's something that the pandemics commission is going to have to drill deep into.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that whole dynamic where um, developing countries had a problem with the whole issue of intellectual property and, you know, making sure that the right to health and the protection of lives is recognized. Because the reason I ask this question is that with this coronavirus pandemic, we've seen a shift in terms of usually intellectual property as far as vaccines are concerned usually comes from the global north. But recently we found that um, Madagascar was a bit you know close to finding something close to a vaccine and now we're looking into questions of proceeding and providing research to making sure that something is developed out of that so me being a pan-Africanist I'm hopeful that at least you know um, the global south will have something to contribute towards this pandemic you know so I was now starting to think Considering the international politics and the dynamic that exists between the global north and the global south, who exactly is going to have a say in terms of um, intellectual property? Who's going to own that? Because I think if it was a country from the global north, this wouldn't even be a debate. A pharmaceutical company would have certain rights observing and making sure that they protect their intellectual um, property and Putting a price tag to how much the vaccine would be. So considering that for once in a very long time, Africa actually possesses the potential to come up with a vaccine that may help the rest of the world. I was just trying to figure out how that dynamic will play out in international politics? Yeah.
1: Great. I mean, that's a very interesting question. I'm, I'm glad you, actually, I'm not sure I'm glad, but I, I, I think it's interesting that you raised Madagascar um, and its a vaccine. Uh, you would recall that the World Health Organization, I think, issued a statement saying that they're still studying this um, vaccine and they're not in a position yet to sort of pronounce on it. So the one thing that is happening, which I think is interesting, is that there has been there has been a lot of coordination. So there are a lot of so there are a lot of joint projects and I think there are joint projects involving and coordinated by the World Health Organization focused on securing vaccines and so there are trials in different places. I know here in South Africa as well that there, there are trials the key question that's going to arise, though, is because you have all of these projects, is once a vaccine is found, the question that's going to arise is which particular entity pharmaceutical has found that and what they decide to do with it. We know that China has announced that if they find vaccine, that they will make it freely available. It's ultimately, I guess, up to the pharmaceutical. If a... Pharmaceutical that's based in Madagascar or the government of Madagascar is the one that eventually finds a vaccine that works and that passes all the tests. Question arises what it's going to do, right? Is it going to insist on its intellectual property right? Or is it going to sort of do what we as developing countries have been asking for a long time and saying this is a health concern and because it's a health concern, this will be freely available. It's a difficult question. I mean, I'm, I'm with you 100% on, on that issue. Um, what the pharmaceuticals, of course, will tell you is, is, don't forget that for every vaccine that comes out, we have spent millions and billions trying to find it. There's also the question of um, recovery of costs, right? So there's also the question of recovery of costs. They're profitable enough that in the future they can find more vaccines. I mean, those are really the issues, and they're really complicated and difficult. It seems to me that there's always a possibility for balancing these things out. I mean, there's all, so one possibility. Uh, in fact, no, the basic guiding principle ought to be recognition of the work that has been put in. I mean, whoever finds the vaccine has put in a lot of work, has has expended costs. That has to be recognized, but also there has to be a limitation on the, the easiest way to put it is greed, right? I mean, there has to be a limitation on the greed, the desire to make exorbitant products profit, Uh, at least on what basis would a private entity, and it's private entities generally that that sort of engage in this, Um, the issue for me ought to be what do we do to restrict exorbitant prices? I mean, that that seems to me um, um, really to be the issue uh, here.
0: Agreed. The coronavirus pandemic has presented an opportunity and proves even further that African states can't continue to um, depend on external supplies for essential internal demands such as um, pharmaceuticals. And I think it's important uh, for African countries to actually start um, taking charge and accelerating the implementation of pharmaceutical manufacturing as well. And I think it would really place most African countries on a or Africa at large on a very different um, economic or global scale, if that's what you'd call it. But yeah, I definitely agree with your sentiments there. Um, So I'd just like to find out if you have any concluding remarks regarding the discussion that we just had. So
1: actually, if you don't mind, I I, I just want to say something about the last thing that you said, because I think it's absolutely important um, um, that this... A particular pandemic provides us with an opportunity. Uh, you know, it's, it's an opportunity, I think, a twofold opportunity. One is an opportunity for the world as a whole to really put into practice something that everybody likes to talk about. Everybody wants to talk about solidarity. And solidarity means that you should be concerned about your fellow human beings. And um, um, even if they're not in the same country as you, even if they're not the same race as you, um, you ought to be concerned. Um, And so the idea that um, we should profit exorbitantly from vaccines is, I think, an idea that goes against solidarity. So one, um, this should provide us an opportunity um, to, to put into practice this idea of solidarity. Um, secondly, and this is the point that you make as a Pan-Africanist I've learned, um, is that it also provides an opportunity for African countries uh, to be self-sufficient. And, and, and absolutely, you're right, we can do it. I mean, there are, there are wonderful research institutions throughout this continent, so that's one. Secondly, you've got the population. We, the tests are done here, right? So, so I think it's important that also our governments are strong in making sure that the outcomes of joint projects and however those joint projects are undertaken um, reflect the contribution um, of Africans. So that's, I think an important point um, that has to be underlined. Um, as far as my final comments on the, the general conversation that we've had, I mean, I think it was wonderful. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it made me think about a lot of things that I don't often think about. So that that was a pleasure. And I certainly hope that um, so we can have this conversation again in the future or different conversations about different things in the future.
0: Thank you so much. It was lovely having you too. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.